Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and this is a show where we discuss everything that happened in the Linux and open source world every single week. So this time, we have a nice interview of Linus Torvalds, the creator of the Linux kernel, discussing the future of Linux itself. We have Ubuntu pondering dropping older CPUs from 2015 and earlier, We have Linux beating Windows in a lot of gaming benchmarks. We have Nextcloud Hub 7 being released and a lot of other updates to desktops, to the kernel, to drivers and the logo of OpenSUSE as well. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, I left all the links I used to create this show in the show notes. And if you want to support it and help me make more of these shows, then you also have a bunch of links in the show notes as well. So let's get started. So first, if you want to know more about the current state of Linux as a kernel and a platform and how it's going to move forward, Linus Torvalds, who is the creator of the Linux kernel and is still the main person in charge of accepting what goes into the Linux kernel, Uh, He held a talk at the Japanese edition of the Open Source Summit. And apparently the first thing is we can expect a final update for 2023 to Linux, uh, which should be version 6.7 at around Christmas. Uh, But more importantly, uh, Linus talks about a lot of stuff that affects the kernel. The first topic is maintainer fatigue. It's a well-known fact that people maintaining the Linux kernel, reviewing other people's code and deciding where we're gonna go and what we're going to include and is the code up to snuff and should we remove certain parts of the kernel, they are pretty much drained. It's a hard job. Not only because you have to be available most of the time to review other people's code in a timely fashion, uh, you have to be able to judge if the approach they took in writing their code is solid enough, if it's secure enough, if it's future-proof enough, and then you also have to interact with other humans, something that as we all know, can be pretty exhausting. I mean, I I love uh, being a content creator. If you don't know, on top of that podcast, I also have a relatively successful YouTube channel about Linux uh, called The Linux Experiment. And interacting with other people on the stuff that you produced or on talking about what other people have produced can be a tiring experience. And I can only imagine what it must be like for a Linux kernel developer. Now, Torvalds points that out specifically, saying that the people relationships are the hard part, especially between developers and maintainers, but also between maintainers themselves, because they don't always agree on where to go with specific issues and features and the general architecture of the kernel. Now, the other aspect of that is that a lot of the current, let's call them top kernel people, so the people who've been invested in the kernel, who make most of the decisions, uh, they would start hitting their 60s soon, and some of them might even start reaching their 70s, which means that at some point they might want to retire and not be as involved in the Linux community. Torvald seems to think that a lot of people will stick around, but probably none of them will. And this is also why, apparently, they started adding Rust support to the kernel. It's not just because Rust is a popular language and it makes sense to use in the kernel, although Torvald says that it does make sense uh, to use this sort of language to write, for example, drivers in the Linux kernel, but it's also because it is a language that is being learned mostly by younger people. And so by supporting it, you draw more people in to contributing and maintaining the Linux kernel. Uh, Because C, no matter how good it can be for specific use cases, 
is not as popular as it once was. So it wasn't just a technical decision to add in Rust support, it was also to make sure that more younger people came in and so the community can be refreshed uh, by, by newer minds and newer people to take the place of people who are maybe going to leave or start being less involved in the community. Torvalds also talked about AI, but not necessarily whether we should include AI in the kernel or whatever, more like AI-generated code. And he says that it is inevitable that at some point there will be some AI-generated code that will be submitted to the kernel. And he's not really worried about it. It basically says that he's going to judge this code just like any other code. Is it sound? Should it make its way into the kernel? Is the architecture solid? If yes, then no matter who produced it, it's, it's coming in. And he's just saying that AI is the next step in automation. He basically views all these AI generation tools as just another tool in a developer's toolkit. Uh, he says that's nothing new, basically. It's just an evolution of what we already used. He even says that it can be a great tool to help identify what he calls the stupid bugs, which are basically the majority of bugs where your pattern is incorrect, where you forgot a, a semicolon or something stupid like that. AI can be a great help to, to normalize that and offer basically a skeleton for something you want to do uh, on which you can then build. It can help auto-correct certain things. So he seems pretty chill about AI and about the future of Linux in general. Uh, funding is apparently more than secure. The old guard seems willing to stick around for a while. There are some new people coming in thanks to addition uh, of the new languages like Rust. And AI is seen as a solid tool to help automate some stuff, some bug fixing to check the code. So he's not worried at all. And that's pretty refreshing, honestly, uh, to see someone who's not all doom and gloom. I mean, I, I have my fair share of doom and gloom sometimes. So yeah, pretty nice to see. And uh, I guess we can all be secure in knowing that the future of the Linux kernel uh, seems pretty bright. Now, talking about the kernel and drivers, we also have to talk about power management uh, on Linux. If you use a laptop on Linux, uh, well, if you use Linux on your laptop, your experience might have been hit or miss. Me personally, I never really encountered that many disastrous problem with a laptop not going to sleep or using way too much battery compared to what I should expect. But a lot of people seem to have issues with that. Uh, and it looks like there's a reason why it can be less efficient compared to other operating systems. Uh, there was a recent patch submitted to the Linux kernel uh, from the AMD developers to specifically improve system, uh, well, system power consumption, how much battery you're going to eat when your system is sleeping. And judging from the comments on these patch notes, it looks like this patch might actually make Linux more popular as a pre-installed option on laptops. Because for now, in certain countries, Linux doesn't meet the necessary regulatory certifications because it uses too much power when it's sleeping on specific devices. Uh, but on Windows, the same hardware behaves as it should, which means that Linux is not certified in certain areas of the world to be shipped as a pre-installed OS. Uh, this apparently concerns a lot of Lenovo laptops and some AMD Ryzen-based devices as well. So the patch that AMD submitted aims to fix that by modifying the PCI driver and the code that shuts down PCIe to correctly put a device to sleep and to consume less power when the laptop is at idle. And so as a result, Linux might fit the necessary criteria to be an acceptable option to be shipped pre-installed. 
as the default operating system in more countries. I'm pretty sure a lot of countries already accept that, depending on the device, but on some devices, if it uses too much power, it's not going to be certified, and so the manufacturer cannot ship it as is. So if that fixes that, maybe we'll see more devices being shipped with Linux, and that's actually pretty cool. Now, I'm not saying that I'm expecting to see Linux pop up everywhere from every manufacturer know that this is fixed because it only affects a subset of laptops and a subset of countries, but at least there won't be the excuse of it's not optimized or compliant enough. Uh, this won't be the case anymore, which is something at least. And for people who use a Linux distro on a laptop, even though it didn't come with Linux pre-installed, uh, then at least you know you're gonna get better power efficiency and less battery drain when the laptop is sleeping, which is always a very nice thing to have. And since we're on the topic of optimization, it looks like Ubuntu is experimenting with requiring a relatively recent x86 CPU to run its future versions. Uh, basically what they want to do is to move the baseline of support that's needed to run Ubuntu to the x86-64 v3 feature level. x86 being Intel and AMD, 64 being 64-bit because Ubuntu dropped support for a lot of 32-bit packages uh, relatively recently, and v3 being the feature level expected from CPUs because obviously uh, the 64-bit architecture for x86 CPUs has been around for a long, long while, but these CPUs have gained more and more features in the form of extension sets. So if Ubuntu moved to x86 64v3, it means that your CPU would have to support at least AVX, which would limit uh, the most recent Ubuntu releases to CPUs that have been released around 2015 and newer. And it's not a stark cutoff because after 2015, some CPUs like like very bottom-of-the-line CPUs were released without AVX support, and so they are not V3 feature-level compatible. So it's not all CPUs made after 2015 that are supported, and maybe some CPUs from before 2015 might be supported as well, but it's still a relatively violent separation. Uh, so they're obviously not just jumping in, they're gonna look at how many people still use older CPUs, they're going to look at the performance benefits of optimizing for just this newer subset of hardware, because if it doesn't yield that much improvement for people, then it's not super interesting. But if it goes through, it means that Ubuntu and any Ubuntu-based distro will no longer be a suitable option for older hardware. And a lot of other distributions that are based on Ubuntu would have to either do a lot of extra work to add back support for these CPUs, basically maintaining their own versions of the Linux kernel, or they would have to just abandon hold older hardware as well, which might be a problem. So what's interesting as well is that Red Hat and SUSE recently decided that they would stick with V2 of the architecture, uh, and so they will keep supporting previous and older CPUs. Ubuntu is already offering an installer which only supports the v3 feature level, is optimized for this feature level, which should technically result in better performance on recent CPUs, so you can already try it out, and you're, if you do so, you're very much encouraged to report how much performance you gained compared to previously, if there are some broken things that they haven't noticed, if there are regressions, or if there is just no performance gain at all. So it's good that they're taking a careful route here, I am all for using the modern hardware we have access to 
at its maximum potential. So if we can compile and optimize everything for a specific subset to make sure that we take advantage of everything and we don't carry around a bunch of legacy code that is not used on modern CPUs but might slow them down, I'm all for it. But also one of the main advantages of Linux-based systems is to save older computers from the inevitable Windows rot uh, or for the inevitable Windows updates that will mess up your system or maybe your system just isn't eligible for, an, for a Windows update to the newer version and so Linux is your only choice if you don't want to buy a new computer. And 2015 might still be a bit too close in terms of a cutout to stop supporting specific hardware. Obviously the or better way to do it would be to offer at install an automatic choice between A, do you want the latest optimizations or not, depending on what your CPU supports. That would be the better way, but it's also a lot of extra work, so I can understand why they're not doing this. And it would probably be a third-party unofficial PPA that would do this instead. Now, let's talk about x.org and in the long series of x.org is old and full of old vulnerabilities. Uh, the x.org server and xwayland as well, because it's basically the x.org server running on Wayland, uh, were both updated this week to fix security problems that are both two decades old. Uh, so you probably know x.org will not see any new features ever again. It probably never will happen, but at least it's getting some security fixes because even if we all, well, all most distros want to move away from x.org and move to Wayland, they still need x.org as the base for x Wayland because not every app is fully Wayland compatible. And so some will require an x.org server. And so, x.org is still getting some fixes, notably for critical vulnerabilities. Uh, this time it's bugs dating back to 2007 and 2009, so more than a decade old. These are problems with out-of-bound memory reads, uh, which can lead to privilege escalation if the X server is run as root uh, or through SSH, or they can lead to some information being disclosed unwillingly. They were both uncovered by the Trend Micro Zero Day Initiative, which seems to be the main actor working on trying to fix the numerous holes that we're still discovering in the venerable x.org server. Now, interestingly enough, uh, even though x.org is not seeing new features, it looks like there's some work being done to add modern C support in the x.org code base, because apparently it uses a older version of C, and so when you're trying to compile it with recent compilers, uh, there are errors or, or that are being like displayed and which prevent compilation from reaching a, a successful state. And so these errors are generally ignored and turned into warnings, but this could lead to some bugs and, and to some like probably vulnerabilities as well. Uh, so there's some support for newer versions of C being added to the XDORO code base, which one could pretty much interpret as a new feature if we really want to go that far. So I don't know for how long this will go on, how long x.org will keep getting security fixes, but since not everyone can move to Wayland just yet, uh, at least we're still getting those fixes. And since we still need xWayland, it's good that some people are still watching that code base and fixing some stuff. Uh, that's still something. And on that same topic, I recently reported that Red Hat would move away from x.org in Red Hat Enterprise Linux 10, so in 2025. But we now have more details about what it entails, uh, what being removed means exactly. 
so basically what will be done is they're gonna build the x.org code but with a few flags to disable running what is still called x386 on bare metal so basically no x.org server running as the main display server but they will enable x wayland obviously because that's the part they need so you won't be able to run x11 as the default session anymore you will have to use a wayland compositor instead but every app that relies on x.org will run perfectly well using x wayland as a wayland application so basically you can still game uh, using x wayland uh, you don't have to to just forget well i don't know how many people who use red hat enterprise linux uh, do gaming on it but you could uh, so this means that as long as xwayland is enabled in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the x.org codebase will still receive some bug fixes because you can't leave it behind entirely. You need to fix those things for xwayland. And in turn, they will obviously affect x.org as well because it's basically the same thing. So the code of x.org won't be completely unmaintained, but it is clearly stated that you should not get your hopes up for anything other than security fixes and bug fixes. They will not add new features. You should not expect like fresh new releases of x.org. It's gonna be bug fixes. Which still extends the life cycle of x.org. Uh, because as long as someone maintains it for x Wayland, we still have the ability to use those same bug fixes in running an x.org server. Unless the distro doesn't package it this way at all, no one offers a third-party repo for it, and all distros decided to drop it at the same time, which will not happen for a long while still. So if you don't like Wayland, if it's not ready for your specific use case, don't worry, you still can use Linux and you still will be able to do so for a long while. And speaking of Wayland, because it's all, apparently it's all everyone is talking about these days. Uh, if you use LXQt, you will not miss the Wayland train either. Uh, the Lubuntu developers, uh, Lubuntu being the LXQt-based spin of Ubuntu, they talked about their plans for the 24.04 release. And they want to have an optional Wayland session available for this version. They don't want to make it the default session. Uh, because 24.04 will be an LTS release and they only want to ship something that will be very stable. So since LXQt is just adding support for a Wayland session, they don't want to make that the default. So you will still have x.org as the default. But if you want to try out Wayland, you will be able to. Because LXQt has been working on porting their desktop from Qt 5 to Qt 6 in the same move that KDE Plasma has been doing. And so LXQt feels that comes April 2024, their work will be in a good enough state that they can offer Wayland as an optional choice. Now, on top of that, Lubuntu developers will not just do that. They have some other plans for the distro. Uh, they want to improve the Calamares installer by adding the minimal install option that Ubuntu added recently. But interestingly, their minimal install option will also not ship Snap support, uh, which... I'm not sure they have the right to do so as an official spin of Ubuntu. Uh, maybe they will have to cancel that, but I mean, they are not supposed to ship other packaging formats than snaps, but maybe they can remove snap support in specific options. Not sure. 
They will also have an improved first boot screen. They'll add a GUI for Bluetooth, something that apparently they lacked for a while, although this GUI will be GTK-based and not Qt-based, so it's not gonna look like the rest of the desktop. They will add a config tool to change the login screen settings, which is SDDM, just like on KDE. They will add new themes, and they have a few other usability improvements planned as well. So Lubuntu 24.04 might be an interesting release because it's finally doing something new, which is cool. And it's interesting to see a relatively small spin of Ubuntu having that much work done. And it also alleviates my concerns that smaller desktops like LXQt, for example, might end up being stuck on x.org when everyone has moved to Wayland. Uh, I talked about that in a recent news video uh, as I was worried that we might lose some options as they would die off when x.org support completely ends and they still haven't made the transition. But apparently that's not a big worry. Maybe LXQt is able to move faster because they're using some parts of the KDE frameworks which are being ported to support Wayland. So maybe they have a lot of that work already done and they only have to port their own tools and, and modifications that they made. Uh, but it's still reassuring to see that even smaller desktops have plans and will be able to have Wayland support in the future. Now, still on desktop environments, we've got some updates on the Cosmic desktop this week, this time with the ability to right-click a title bar and to get various options, notably making a window float if you're in tiling mode and displaying all the keyboard shortcuts you can use to apply those actions. So it's just a feature every other desktop has, but that Cosmic has implemented now. Uh, they also improved their text editor, which seems to be very focused on being used for, for development and coding. Uh, it will now let you double or triple click text to select either just a word or the entire sentence. Uh, you can now search through a project to find the files in various folder and the folder structure of your project. You can integrate Git inside of the text editor so you can see the current status of the folder and the project. You can see diffs. Uh, with red and green modifications to see what has been added or removed compared to a previous version. So that's pretty cool. Uh, they'll have at least one app that follows their own guidelines and interfaces, uh, and it seems like it will be plenty, uh, plentiful in terms of features. They also improved multi-monitor support. They will let you move an entire virtual desktop to another display, and Windows will be better handled as well, uh, meaning that they will migrate between displays when you connect or disconnect an external display. So for example, you have your laptop, you have a window open, you plug an external display, one of your windows will remember that the last time you were plugged into that display, it was on the external display, and so it will move there. And when you unplug the display, it will automatically be moved back to the laptop's display instead. So something pretty cool, um, something you'd expect, but it's nice that they thought about it. They also fixed some bugs for X Wayland support apparently, because Cosmic will be Wayland only, they're not gonna support X.org, which is like totally normal when you're developing a new desktop environment in 2022 and 2023, you're not going to support the old thing that is basically end of life. They also completed their wallpaper settings. Uh, you now have the option to open multiple windows of the same application, something that wasn't supported in some of their Cosmic apps. You also have now support for high-resolution mouse scrolling, if you have a mouse that does that. And there are some smaller improvements all around. So it's good. It looks like they're in the polish phase now, where they add like the final missing options and shortcuts 
instead of developing complete applications and complete libraries. So hopefully we'll see a beta or, or at least an official alpha of Cosmic come out soon. Uh, maybe we'll be able to try it out with an unofficial repo on Pop! OS or something. Uh, but I'm very excited to see where they're going with that, how it's gonna work with applications from other desktops, and if the customization options they showed really bring a different experience, or if you could just have done all of this with KDE and why bother developing something new. We'll have to see, but I think it's an interesting project, at least from the blog post updates that they publish regularly. Now, if you're into privacy and hosting your own cloud and building your own ecosystem, you probably already know that Nextcloud Hub 7 was released this week. Nextcloud, I talk about it a lot on this podcast and on the Linux news because it's, in my opinion, the best tool to build your own ecosystem, like file storage, email, calendars, contacts that can be synced with everything, tons of apps, integrations. And if you run a small business or an organization, honestly, I don't think you can do better than self-hosting Nextcloud if you don't want to go the route of like Microsoft Office 365 or, or Google Workspaces. If you want something private where you have full control, I think Nextcloud is the best option. And so with Hub7, they have improved a lot of stuff. First, the search feature, which was pretty crappy f uh, before, is now completely revamped. You still can search from every single component of your Nextcloud instance, but now the interface is way better. You can have filters, it opens a pop-up instead of a little, like, small menu, like it would be an, an indicator in a notification tray, and it lets you find stuff way more easily. You can also now set out-of-office messages if you use Nextcloud in an organization. You can add user statuses to let other people know what you're doing. All of these will be displayed in calendar events when people try to invite you, in Nextcloud Talk, which is the, like their instant messaging thing, and in emails. Nextcloud also pushes their AI integrations, so you can now run a local instance of Stable Diffusion and plug that in into Nextcloud to automatically generate images in notes, in collectives, and stuff like that. You can connect to Aleph Alpha as well, and you can also set re limit requests. Well, you can also set limits for the number of requests that users on your Nextcloud instance can do. If, if it costs you money to run uh, specific AI integrations, you can say, hey, you, you cannot do more than 10 per month because it costs too much. Nextcloud Photos now supports live photos that you can take on iPhones, and it also improved the support for EXIF metadata, so you will see more information about the pictures you took when you view them in Nextcloud Photos. The file storage app was completely rewritten, it migrated to Vue.js, and it makes it apparently about 65% faster uh, to display your files, to display your previews, you have better progress bar when you're copying and moving stuff around. There are a lot of improvements. You can also annotate PDFs directly from your Nextcloud instance, you can now customize the navigation bar to change the order of the apps or hide certain ones, and they also improved Nextcloud Office, which is their own integrated online office suite. I think it's based on Collabora Office. Uh, so it gained the ability to generate QR codes. You can now set conditional formatting in your spreadsheets. You can share your notes with other people. The mail component was also updated. Uh, it was probably the worst part, like the web mail uh, that Nextcloud uses by default is probably the worst part of Nextcloud. It's lacking so many features. It's so slow. Sometimes it doesn't pull in some emails. They fixed a lot of that. Uh, you can also now sort by date. You can search through the contents of emails, which was a big missing part. Uh, you can manage tags better as well. It implements the smart picker that they added everywhere else uh, to add links to other Nextcloud elements inside of your mails or generate 
share links for specific files that you want to share via email. It looks like they've improved it a lot. And Deck, which is the Kanban board app, now lets you add cover images for your cards, so your boards can look a bit more snazzy and you can find stuff more easily. Uh, they have a completed status as well, and you have some keyboard shortcuts inside the app as well. And Talk, the video chat module, now lets you gather a consent from the people you're talking with or you're talking to when, when you want to record a chat. You can also add your webcam in a sort of picture-in-picture -picture mode when you're sharing your screen so people can still see your face. You can also invite people to a call by using a phone number. And uh, if you invite guests from outside of your Nextcloud instance, they can now set uh, their name when they connect to the meeting. Honestly, Nextcloud is moving extremely fast these days. I just got the update to Nextcloud Hub 6 very recently, and 7 is already out. These updates are not small ones. They're pretty major. They add big, big features. And I am amazed at the speed with which they deliver these. And honestly, after I get an update, it's generally about a month after they release it. So I get like pro probably the point 0.1 update. It's always very stable. I never have issues with my Nextcloud instance. I haven't had to do any maintenance on that ever. It just runs super smoothly. And I don't see anything that would be missing with Hub 7 uh, for a small company, an organization, or an individual. It's just a fantastic package. And yeah, I think if you want to move away from like iCloud or, or the general Google ecosystem or Microsoft's ecosystem, try self-hosting a Nextcloud instance uh, on, a, on, an, on a small home server if you have one. I think it's going to fit the bill. And you can integrate it very well with your Linux desktops as well uh, because it's CalDAV, CardDAV, so you can integrate it with anything. It's really, really solid. Now, the winners of the OpenSUSE logo contest have been selected. And I realize that an audio podcast is not the best place to talk about that because you're obviously not going to be able to see the various... Uh, well, logos that have been picked as the winners. So I will encourage you to click on one of the links in the show notes uh, to see if you're interested in that, at least, to see who won uh, that contest. Basically, it's weird. Uh, they seem to have picked exclusively based on user votes, but for individual logos and not for, like, a whole concept, which means that the logos are disjointed, like some logos, like the general OpenSUSE logo is basically a cute chameleon. Uh, it looks nice. Uh, it's it's stylized. It's a bit more modern. It's still green. You still recognize it as a chameleon. I think it's a solid upgrade. But then for the other distros like Tumbleweed, Leap, or Kalpa, which is the KDE version of OpenSUSE, none of the logos have the same feel, look and feel to it. Uh, for, for Tumbleweed, it's a tie between three logos, so I don't know which one they're going to pick. Uh, one is the one I voted on, which is a cute chameleon. It's sitting on a branch with the Infinity logo at the end of the branch for, for Tumbleweed because it's a rolling release. It's cute. There are two others that, in my opinion, are way less recognizable. So which one are they going to pick? Not sure. Uh, Leap got a very stylized logo, which is a square pointing down uh, with a down-facing arrow under it. Slow Roll got a circle with a sort of curly wave inside, and Kalpa got a stylized chameleon head with a KDE gear inside, which means that none of these projects share a visual identity now, and I'm not sure if that was the right approach. I would probably have asked people to vote on a concept, because each artist had to submit a concept with a logo for every variant, 
And so probably people should have voted on concept instead of individual logos because as of now, like there's no cohesion between the brands and I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. It's still a refresh, it still looks nice, it keeps the identity in most cases, but it's not very cohesive. Now it's time for our scary privacy segment. If you have a smart TV and you enjoy privacy, you might want to reconsider because modern smart TVs apparently use something called ACR for automatic content recognition. You might have heard about this. This was the first time I read about it. This is a mechanism, some piece of code that identifies what is being viewed on your TV, including everything that's coming from a cable box, a set-top box, a, like an Apple TV, a Google Chromecast or whatever, a gaming console, a streaming service. This is running whatever the source. And the way it identifies that content is by grabbing a ton of screenshots and comparing them with a giant database of various media like movies, TV shows, video games, ads, and whatever. So basically, the content producers, well, at least the smart TV manufacturers, can know exactly what you're watching, what you're playing, the ads that you've actually watched, and they basically sell this data to target you with ads and to make sure that you've actually watched the ads that were displayed so they can give some data and some analytics uh, to people who display ads on their services. Smart TVs can apparently capture up to 7,200 images an hour. That's a whopping two frames per second, which is still a lot for screenshots. And the data is obviously used for targeting you with more ads. It's apparently a giant business estimated at $18 billion. I had zero idea this existed. And so if I sound very surprised and shocked, uh, well, maybe you're going to laugh because you knew about it all along, but I didn't. Now, fortunately, most TVs let you turn these things off, but it is still on by default. So I would encourage you to look through the settings of your smart TV, try to find like a privacy hub or something, and disable anything that remotely looks like uh, automatic content recognition. Looking at the options on my own Samsung smart TV, there were a bunch of stuff that were deemed mandatory, including the ability to combine data sources, to display ads, and to link multiple devices together, which all of those things I could not disable. I'm pretty sure this is not legally allowed in the EU where I live, because I should have to be, I, I probably should have the right to say, no, I don't want you to combine data sources, and I don't want you to use my data to display ads, because that's something Facebook, or at least a lot of meta apps, have been in trouble for, uh, for a while now. So I'm very surprised that this is allowed, and I might just uh, maybe ask uh, someone like at the at, that runs the GDPR stuff. Uh, not sure what's the name. I think it's CNIL in France. Um, I will probably ask them if this is uh, authorized because it doesn't feel like it should be. Okay, and now it's time to finish this with the gaming news. And first, if you have dreamed of playing Fortnite on Linux, well, first, I'm very sorry because this game is horrible and I don't know why people play it. Uh, but second, uh, you will not be playing it anytime soon because Epic clearly stated that they have no plans to work on the Linux version or to even support the Steam Deck anytime soon unless it reaches, in their words, tens of millions of users. Uh, it was in an interview with Team Sweeney, which is who is the CEO of Epic, maybe which is the right term in this case. Uh, basically, he said that he loves the Steam Deck hardware, 
he specified that he loved the hardware specifically, maybe implying he doesn't love the software, which would be logical since he runs Epic with the Epic Game Store, which is the biggest competitor uh, to, to Valve and Steam. Uh, he also said he wishes the Steam Deck had tens of millions of users, at which point it would make sense to support it with Fortnite. Now, Valve apparently has around 3 million decks in the wild. We can probably have a few hundred thousand Linux desktop gamers on top of that. So we are not at tens of millions of gamers. But honestly, like not tapping a 3 million player market seems pretty weird. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Fortnite is available on macOS, right? And I don't think 3 million people play on macOS. So if you have 3 million people who are definitely gamers, not having your game at least compatible with, with anti-cheat is weird. So it feels like a move to not put Fortnite on, uh, on Steam uh, so they don't have to do that. It's surprising. If, if macOS players... Well, let me just check if Fortnite is available on macOS. Okay, now, apparently it's no longer available, but it has been until 2020, so for a long while it's been in there, which means that they actually went to the trouble of developing a macOS build. And I would be shocked if more than 3 million people played Fortnite on, on Mac. So you have a 3 million people market, which are absolutely gamers. It's not just computer owners, it's definitely gamers. They have Steam decks. And you're not willing to put your game here, but you were willing to develop an entirely different build for macOS when enabling it for the Steam Deck would just be one checkbox in your own anti-cheat that does support Linux. It feels like a BS excuse. I'm not sure it's realistic. It's really weird. Uh, it would probably also mean putting Fortnite on the Steam Deck, which would mean giving a sizable cut of the profits to Valve, something that uh, Epic has not been willing to do on Android, on iOS, and on macOS. That's the reason why they don't support macOS either. So maybe it's more a problem of no matter how many people run it, uh, if we don't have an official Epic Game Store client uh, that we can run on the Steam Deck, we're never going to put it there. Uh, it's probably more that. I think it's disingenuous to put that in terms of user numbers because uh, they there's no way they had 3 million for potential players on macOS for Fortnite. Now, uh, we also got a new beta of Steam on Linux, uh, notably improving performance when using remote play with NVIDIA GPUs and hardware encoding, so that's pretty nice. It also improved the scaling on the Steam Deck when you're not selecting FSR, uh, scaling like pixel or integer scaling will be much better. And they also redesigned the Steam Workshop a bit to make it easier to find mods. Uh, the Steam Workshop is basically the place where you can subscribe to mods and it automatically adds them to your games. So it lets you see the mods that you subscribe to, it lets you sort them, you can find more mods more easily, you have filters. It looks like it's a much better experience. And there were also a few Linux-specific fixes, notably an issue where even if there was a Linux build available for the game, Steam would automatically download the Windows build instead and run that with Proton, which obviously might not be the best way to play the game every time. So this is now fixed in the beta. Pretty cool improvements all around. We will probably see the stable versions pretty soon for that. And since we're talking about performance, it looks like Windows is being 
absolutely destroyed by Linux when it comes to gaming, at least in a recent performance test across only five different games. Uh, it's made by a German site called Computer Base, and they tested Arch, they tested Nobara, they tested Pop! OS against Windows 11. And the games they took were Cyberpunk 2077, Forspoken, the latest Ratchet and Clank game, Starfield, and the Talos Principle 2. None of these games have a native Linux build, they were all run using Proton, so a translation layer. These games were built to run on Windows, and the fact that we can run them on Linux is just because, well, Wine developers and Valve decided that we should be able to do so. Apparently, in every single case, Windows 11 lost in terms of performance, and Nobara was apparently the best choice, uh, which is not surprising since it's a distro made by the developer of Proton GE, which is a fork of Proton with better compatibility for more games. And Nobara is a gaming optimized distro, so it makes sense that it would get the best results. Linux outperformed Windows in every single game, but average frame times were behind on Linux. They were always smoother on Windows, so even though you're getting like from 1% to 10% more performance on Linux, you might still get a more choppy experience because frame pacing is not as fast, well, not as smooth. And this is probably because we're running a translation layer with a little bit of overhead on top of the game. But that's pretty interesting because Valve announced recently that they are working on improving frame pacing in the latest betas of SteamOS and of Proton, which means that we might reach the better performance target, but also better frame pacing in the future. And we need to remember, this is not the OS these games were designed to run. They were designed to run on Windows. So either Linux has a much lower base resource usage, which is honestly probably the case compared to Windows 11, or our drivers work better. But I would be very surprised uh, by that statement. In any case, it is absolutely insane to me that games running through a translation layer on an OS that they were never meant to run on can beat their native versions on Windows. It really means that Windows is a terribly optimized operating system. Uh, if we can just fix those frame pacing issues, I think we'll be golden. So this will conclude this episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you did, don't hesitate to check out all the links in the show notes. Don't hesitate to leave a review as well. Uh, I don't have many reviews yet uh, on this podcast, even after 50 episodes. So if you want to leave a review, just go with your gut. Give me from one to five stars, four stars, I don't care. Uh, just leave a review so people can know if uh, you enjoy listening to this show or not. If you want to support it, plenty of links in the description to do that. If you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links I use to create the show are in the show notes as well. And then I guess that's goodbye and you will hear me in the next one. Bye.